Morning, church family. So good to be in the Lord's house. And uh, how many of you are ready to fly away? I will say at the very end of Revelation, John, uh, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, said, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so today, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to continue in our study of Revelation, but we have to understand the timeline or the timetable of God. It is God's timetable. So it is Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. And let me just say to you this morning that uh, when I left Baltimore to go to college in New York, I went to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. How many of you know where that is? Not many. Okay. It's up in New York on Long Island. And I went there. It was a four-year. It's, a five, it's a, one of the five federal academies. It's like the Naval Academy, Air Force Academy, West Point, etc. Uh, but it's in Long Island, New York. I went up there. And one of the unique parts of our education is that for six months in our sophomore year and six months in our junior year, we actually would go out on U.S. merchant vessels and get hands-on training at sea. And so I got to spend six months of my sophomore year. I boarded a ship, the USS Baytown in New Jersey, and then it went down to Panama, back to Houston, all the way over back up to Jacksonville, and then back up to Bayonne, New Jersey. I then left that ship and went to another ship that took me across the Atlantic into the Mediterranean, through the Greek Isles, up through the Black Sea to Odessa, Russia. And then I came back from there and I was in dry dock for the last 45 days in Jacksonville, Florida, before the first sea year was over. That was six months the next year, my junior year, I was able to board a ship in Oakland, California, the American President Lines, and uh, I was on the USS Johnson. And so we went from Oakland up to the Aleutian Islands of Alaska, and then across the Pacific Ocean, where we were experiencing, are you ready for this, 45-foot swells. Now, those who have ever been out on the ocean, you know a 45-foot swell is overwhelming. We were told to stay in our stateroom. And one time, my Walkman, y'all remember this Sony Walkman? That's what I had in college, folks. That was it. It flew across the room during one of those rolls. And I needed to get it because I was listening to some good music. So I ran across the room when the ship had listed to the right, and I was trying to make it back before it all of a sudden pushed back over to the other side, and I almost got there. I went midair into the air to try to get to my bed before the roll, and all of a sudden the ship listed the other way, and I slammed into the wall, and I realized then that's why they tell you to stay in the bed. I hurt my shoulder, but I will tell you this, in all my travels, all through Asia, we went to Okinawa and Yokohama and Hong Kong and Manila and Subic Bay, all up and down through there, across Pacific. During the time that I was at sea for those two six-month periods, I read the Word of God. 
and I camped out in Daniel and Ezekiel and Haggai and Nahum and Joel and Amos and all of the other prophets. And I started to see God's timetable come into crystal clear vision for me. It was amazing. And when I would return from my sea uh, experiences, I would go to the library on campus and I would read secular history books that recorded the same exact information. In fact, I found out that the Bible is a source document for most history books. Amen and hallelujah. So if you're here this morning, you're going to learn God's timetable from a man who lived way before most of it came to pass. That is God's sovereign prophecy at work. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Daniel chapter 9. And if you remember, I gave you homework to read Daniel 2, 7, 8, and 9. How many did it? Oh, praise the Lord. Okay, good. So I'll, I'll go ahead and ask you some questions as we go through, okay? All right, let's, uh, let's look at the Lord's uh, word here. I'll begin in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, notice he, uh, he occurred, he came to Daniel in chapter 8 came to me in a swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, folks, you may not know this, but the evening sacrifice happened at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Understand, there's no temple at this point. Daniel is not where there's, there's no temple. But he is in prayer at the time of the evening sacrifice. Folks, it was 3 p.m. that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave up the Holy Spirit. This is important for us to understand that Gabriel would come to Daniel at that time. Verse 22, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. So it can be understood, folks. And then verse 24, which is our memory verse today. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets in a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, 
he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Do you remember what Tim read in Matthew chapter 24 earlier? An abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Father, this is your word. Oh Lord, it is so humbling to know that you are giving through the prophet Daniel wisdom as to your timetable to bring all things into perfect consummation according to your good pleasure and will. We pray that you will illumine our hearts and our minds this morning, that we might not just take this history lesson as it is on a physical level, but that we might see your divine plan being played out right before our very eyes. Help us to know how we are to share the greatest news of all with everyone around us, Jesus saves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as I think about it, in the homework, we talked about reading Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and of course, then Daniel chapter 8 and 9. And so, uh, you see up here on the table, in Daniel chapter 2, just as a recap, there is a golden, uh, there is a statue that has four five metal groups, gold, silver, bronze, uh, uh, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. And of course, Daniel then identifies Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king at the time, and Babylon as that first kingdom, that they were in fact the head of gold. We later learn in chapter 8 that Media Persia, the Medes and the Persians, joined forces and they then invaded Babylon and they became the second great empire to oppress God's people. And then, of course, the third kingdom that came on the scene was in 331 BC. You probably remember the name from your history classes in school Alexander the Great. And there's a painting in the Louvre of Alexander the Great conquering the known world at that time, getting all the way to the teardrop of India and literally weeping because there were no more peoples to conquer. Alexander the Great would then return back to Babylon, a name that you need to be familiar with as we go through the book of Revelation. And he goes mad. He literally goes insane and dies after eight short years of conquering the known world. Well, obviously, Greece then gives way to the great Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, of course, is symbolized by the iron legs. And so we see here the play on this. Daniel 7 just uses animals instead of this statue. And the first animal, of course, is a lion with wings. This is a representation of Babylon, just like the head of gold. And Media Persia is represented by this bear that was leaning up on one side. If you read through Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that the bear leans on one side. It implies that, in fact, the Persian part of the Medes and the Persians was the greater or the more powerful people of the two. And then, of course, you see Greece there, and it's represented by the leopard, the leopard being a fast animal because of how swiftly Greece actually overtook the world. And then finally, you have this frightening beast with sharp iron uh, teeth. And of course, this 
is represented by Rome. And you remember the, the, how Rome came into being. It was a bunch of nomadic people groups that came together, but it was Julius Caesar who crossed the Rubicon and won the battle and then brought Rome into prominence. It wasn't later until his nephew, Augustus Caesar, would then dominate the known world at that time and then commission Pilate, I mean Herod to actually build the temple, which began in 27 B.C. And of course, that temple then was the temple that existed when Jesus was born into this world and came and would worship there at that temple. And then in Daniel chapter 8, we see these two animals that are charging at one another. The first, of course, is the ram, and the second is the goat. The ram is, of course, Media Persia. It has two prominent horns. And then the goat, of course, has one prominent horn, Alexander the Great. But then his kingdom was divided at his death in 323 BC. And that death of Alexander the Great then divided the empire into four parts. Lysimachus, Cassander, Seleucid, and Ptolemy were those four commanders. And so we'll see here, uh, up on this map, you'll see the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And you'll see it. It's kind of the Fertile Crescent. If you know anything about maps in those days, we would have uh, Babylon over to uh, your right, okay, my left. And then, of course, all the way over to the left is Judah up against the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And so Nebuchadnezzar and following kings... They would rule this entire area, and they would oppress the Israelite people. That's the key that you have to gather, is that all of these kingdoms really occupied uh, the Judean country, okay? And then secondly, you have the Medo-Persian Empire. So the Medes and the Persians joined together. They ransacked Babylon, and they came in, and they took over the known world at that time. They then oppressed the Israelite people. However, there was one king in 539 BC who allowed the Israelites to return from captivity. His name was Cyrus the Persian. And we read about him in Isaiah chapter 45, written about 750 BC. And it's in 539 BC that Cyrus the Persian actually allows the Israelites to return from their exile. And we'll talk about the exile in just a moment. And then, of course, you have the third empire, which is the Grecian Empire. And this, of course, is Alexander's uh, empire. And then, fourthly, we have, this is the division of the Grecian Empire among the four commanders. And you'll see there, in the green, you have Lysimachus, and then you have Cassander. I mean, I'm sorry, Cassander is in the green, Lysimachus is in the orange, the yellow, look at the yellow, that's the Seleucid Empire, and then the blue down in Egypt is the Ptolemaic Empire, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, the Ptolemies. You'll find, if you keep reading in Daniel, Daniel chapter 10 and 11, you'll learn that there are ki- there's the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north is the Seleucid king, uh, and his um, uh, lineage, and then you have the Ptolemaic king is the southern king. And so you see that Daniel here is helping us to see God's timetable from the time of the Babylonian Empire all the way to the time of Jesus Christ, the Roman Empire. So 
Then you have the Roman Empire, which took over, uh, like I said, in about 63 BC. And then, of course, look at what happens. It, they expanded, they uh, bloomed up over all the way to the west into what is modern-day Spain and Portugal and even up into England. So Rome was the, the largest of all of the four empires. And so now we get to this context that we must build because before we get to our passage this morning, we have to understand that Daniel is praying a prayer to God. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, and look at the context. You know me. I'm a pastor who's all about learning the context of a passage of Scripture. It says there in verse 1 of chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, now Darius is a Mede, okay? Darius is one of the Medes. And he says, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures... According to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. Folks, I want to stop right there. Daniel was reading Jeremiah. Let that sink in for a moment. The scriptures that Daniel had, including all of the prophets, included all of the prophets leading up to him. So he had the Pentateuch the first five books of the Bible. He had all of the historical narrative through the uh, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. And then, of course, he had a lot of the prophets that had come before him. Many believe that Daniel wrote his book in the mid-500s B.C. And so Jeremiah was there and was prophesying at the beginning of the 70-year exile the 70-year captivity in Babylon. And Daniel, of course, is reading about Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years. Because here's the key. He had a prophecy that they would be captive in Babylon for 70 years, if you read Jeremiah 25 and 29. And so those 70 years are on Daniel's mind, and he's saying, we're coming to the end of that 70 years, and he's praying that God would deliver his people. And then he goes on to say, so I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. You want homework? Your homework today is to go home and read Daniel's prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. He prays for himself. He prays for his family. He prays for the nation, and he asks God to hear, to respond to his prayer. It is in that context that we see that Daniel's asking about this 70-year captivity. In Leviticus 25, we find that Israel had failed to give the land a rest every seventh year. You see, God had said, you are to plant and produce crops for six years, and then you are to let the land rest for a seventh year. It is a sabbatical. It is a seventh year. It is supposed to stay fallow and allow the land to reproduce on its own. It's interesting that the Israelites had failed to do that. We learn, therefore, that God's judgment is 70 years 
of captivity for Israel because it was one year for every seven years that they failed to keep the covenant law of Leviticus 25. Lest you think I'm uh, not telling the truth, look at 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. And those who escaped from the sword, what does it say? Those who escaped from the sword, the captivity, what would they be doing? At the very end of this quote, it is that it would fulfill 70 years. And so Chronicles is identifying the fact that the Israelites had failed to keep their covenant of letting the land rest every seventh year. And so God's captivity punishment was for 70 years because that's how long they didn't let it lay fallow. Isn't that fascinating? This entire quote shows us that God is going to keep his word. So it's in this context that Daniel's thinking about these 70 years And then God says, but Daniel, I'm going to tell you something even more expansive in scope. And it's 70 times 7. So go all the way over back to our passage of Scripture here. And you'll see in verse 20, he says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, what does he say? I was still in prayer, and Gabriel, the man that I had seen, come earlier in the vision in a swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Now, he says, here's the understanding. Seventy sevens. In the uh, way in which Daniel's writing here, it's seventy sevens. Most scholars agree that this is 70, 70, 70 times 70 years. Well, what's seven times 70? 490 years. Years And he says, that's how many years are decreed for your people. There are 490 years. And then he breaks up those years. The first is that they are decreed for not only the people, but also the city of Jerusalem. And then he breaks down those 490 years. And here is how he does it. The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Do you all see that? Know and understand this, verse 25, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. The anointed one is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There are 400, and I'm sorry, 49 years, 7 times 7, that's 49 years, And then 62 sevens. 62 times 7 is 434 years. You add all of that up, what do you get? 483 years. Now, at the beginning, we just learned that Israel and the people of Israel are decreed or it is determined that they would have 490 years. Well, 483 of those years 
will have all transpired before the Messiah comes, before the anointed one comes. And of course, we know what happened. There was a decree. And if you read any, if you read Nehemiah, you will learn that he goes to Artaxerxes and he asks to return to rebuild and restore the wall around the city and the trench and all of the gates. And it's interesting because Nehemiah gets this decree from Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. And then 49 years counts off on God's clock, his stopwatch. And during that 49 years, what do you think was happening? The city wall and the gates were being rebuilt. And it says here, but in times of trouble. Nehemiah, if you go read the book of Nehemiah, you will learn that they had great difficulty and great opposition to rebuilding the wall and the gates around the city. But he accomplished it in 49 years. And then it says, keep counting from that 49 years, another 434 years until what time? It, that's the 483 total until what time? The Messiah is cut off. Look at what it says there in verse 25. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Verse 26. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. What does it mean to be cut off? Kater is the word here used in Hebrew. The word to kater or cut off literally means to execute, to execute publicly. We know that Jesus Christ was publicly executed. And so he is the anointed one, and he was executed in 30 A.D. And so after that, we have now what is known as the church age, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are now in the church age. But there will come a time at the end when the church age will end, the rapture will occur, and the tribulation will begin, and the tribulation spoken of in Revelation, spoken of in Matthew 24, is the final seven years determined for Israel. There are 483 that have already happened. There's only seven years remaining for Israel, and it's at the time of the end. And so that's where we get this seven-year tribulation period. Pick up with me in verse 27. It says here that he, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. The he here is, of course, a reference to the people of the ruler who will come. And most scholars agree that this is a reference to the Antichrist at the end of the age. And he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, seven years. And then it says this, in the middle of the seven, they will, he will be he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up the abomination that causes desolation. So let's look at it real quickly. After the 483 years, the anointed one will be cut off. That is Jesus Christ. He was crucified on, in A.D. 30. 
And then the church age begins in AD 30. And of course, we'll talk about the rapture next week. Okay, so you don't want to miss that. We'll talk about the rapture, what that means. And then what happens after that? He says, listen, the seven is this final seven-year period that is still in Israel's future. In fact, all 490 years are God's dealing with the Israelite people. The last seven years are God's final dealing with the Israelite people, okay? And there are six prophetic fulfillments. Looking up earlier, our passage or our memory verse, there were six things that were prophetically, that will be prophetically fulfilled in those 490 years. Finishing the transgression, has that been done? No. It won't be finished until the second coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ coming again. Number two, to put an end to sin. To put an end to sin. Is sin gone? No. We still have sin in our world, and so we are waiting for sin to finally be done away with. And then, of course, to atone for wickedness. Of course, we know that Jesus is the atonement for the wickedness of the world, but the ultimate righteous justification for that sin has still not been done because he will come and get all of those who take, who believe in him as they place their faith in him for salvation. And then fourthly, he will bring in everlasting righteousness. Do we have everlasting righteousness yet? No but he will bring it in. And then number five, he will seal up vision and prophecy. That is, all prophecies will be fulfilled, will be final. Not all prophecies have been finalized yet. We still have so many prophecies about the second coming of Christ and him setting up his kingdom. And then number six, he will anoint the most holy. And here it's uh, most important to read the most holy place that is, Jerusalem. We will read at the end of Revelation that the bride of Christ will come out of heaven, and it is the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and we will see the new Jerusalem coming to this earth, and that is what he's referring to here, to anoint the most holy place, to set it apart for heavenly glory. Now, I'll pause right there because a lot of you have a look on your face like, whoa, This is crazy stuff. But let me tell you, if you read Daniel, and then you read Matthew 24, and then you read Revelation, it all starts coming together. God's timetable is perfect and precise. Now, if you have any questions about that 445 BC, 30 AD, if you start doing the math in your head, you go, wait a minute, that's not 483 years. Can I just tell you that there are scholars and mathematicians who have taken the lunar calendar that the Jewish people lived by, and they did major calculations. People have written books on this. And what they do is they determine that on March 14th, 445 B.C., that, that decree was issued, and that exactly 483 years later, Jesus was led to the cross in April of 30. AD. Now, I don't know about you, but when Daniel's writing at about 530 BC about things that are going to happen in 30 AD, does it not give you hope in the one who knows all? It's amazing to me how precise God's prophecies are. His prophecies are 
always precise. And here's my encouragement for you this morning. If God gets that down, he's got you. He's got your life in his hands. I trust the one who knows the end from the beginning. If I trusted in Randy, I would be a ball wound up too tight. And I know some of you think I'm wound up tight. Quit, Jimmy, laughing. But the fact is, when you know this has all come to pass, and then Jesus says, I'm coming again, we can trust him. We can trust him. Amen? And so now let's look at this ruler who will come. It says there that um, in, the, in the verse just after it, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And then it's interesting because Daniel does something very fascinating. He says the end will come like a flood. Don't miss that. Because so many times in Scripture, you and I will read a verse and we'll continue reading the next verse and the next verse. And in our minds, we place them in sequential order and we think of them as happening one right after the other. But it's oftentimes important when you're studying the Word of God to always ask this verse and this verse, how much time is there in between? What's going on? And it's important to do that because Daniel doesn't just stop writing, but it does say the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Does, that, does everybody see that? So we can almost see how that period of time we call the church age actually plays out. It's, it's, he's now saying, okay, these 483 years have been fulfilled, and then the end will have the final seven years in my dealings with the Israelite people. Well, this ruler of the kingdom to come, many believe that he is coming from what's called a revised Roman Empire or the revised Grecian Empire. I believe that he will come from the king of the north, and we'll talk about that here in the next couple of minutes. His identity is the Antichrist. He is the beast of Revelation 13 and 17. The forerunner of this Antichrist is a Seleucid uh, king, and his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He added Epiphanes. Do you know what that means? The glorious one, the one who has come from heaven. That's what he thought of himself. Uh, and he, in, in 169, B, or 169 BC, he actually sacrificed a pig in the temple. If you know anything about Jewish law, a pig is an unclean animal. And he did it to absolutely devastate and, and uh, undermine the Jewish people and their worship. And this led to the Maccabean revolt. If you know anything about the Maccabee family... Uh, many of you may know the period between uh, Malachi and Matthew is about the Israelite people finding their identity, and the Maccabees play very heavily in that history. And so the Maccabean revolt occurred, and then, of course, we know that the future fulfillment of this uh, desecration of the temple will happen at the hands of the Antichrist who will come during the tribulation. And then finally, 
we see here, he will confirm a covenant with many, with the Israelite people. He will sign, the Antichrist will rise up into power. He will sign a covenant, a a treaty with the Israelite people. And then it says in Daniel that he will break that covenant halfway through the week, at three and a half year mark. And it is then that he will set up an abomination that causes desolation, which is what we read about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And of course, what Tim read in Matthew 24. Jesus says, so when you see, when you see this abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then the end will come. And of course, then he says, in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to all sacrifice and offering, and for three and a half years, he will then break the covenant, and the last three and a half years is, of course, the final judgment upon the leaders of this ruler this, this nation that sets itself against Christ. And then finally, he will set up that abomination as, a, as Tim read in Matthew 24, 15. And so the ruler who will come as the Antichrist will speak much more about him in coming weeks. But I want you all to know that the Antichrist is going to come. Now, many of you are going to say, who is the Antichrist? How many of you are going to ask me that question? And I'm going to be very nice about it, and I'm going to say, I don't know. Okay? So if you're coming to hear me tell you about the Antichrist, I will, I will describe him for you. I will talk about where I believe he will rise into power, but I do not know when he will come. And if you ask me, when is Jesus coming again? I'm going to tell you, I don't know. And if you think, well, wait a minute, now you're a pastor, you should know. And I'm going to say, no, I can't know because not even the Son of God knows, nor the angels, because in Matthew 24, verse 36, it clearly states, Jesus himself says, no one knows the hour, but only the Father. Only the Father knows when he will say to his Son, who is sitting at his right hand, all right, Son, it's closing time. Now you return and you go get mine. And that's what he's going to do. And so Daniel helps us to see the panorama of history. Now, I don't know about you, but this morning I get fueled by this because here's the key. God has laid it all out for you and I in his word. Remember what I told you in week one. Most people say, I can't understand Revelation. And the reason they can't is because they don't know Daniel. They don't know Ezekiel. They don't know Isaiah. They don't know Jeremiah. They don't know Zechariah. They don't know Matthew 24. And the point is, is if you learn all these, you don't know First and Second Thessalonians. You see, if you, if you pull all that together, I promise you, all of this will come into crystal clear vision for you. And God will bless you with that information. Knowing that it's, 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 it's something that will fuel your faith. And that's what this is all about. So with that, we close this timetable of Daniel. And next week, we pick back up in Revelation chapter 4. And we will go through chapters 4 and 5. And how many of you have your sermon notes? Look at the pre-work. Read Revelation 4 and 5. And then here are the questions. How is Revelation 4 verses 1 and 2 similar to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. 
And then who are the 24 elders and the four living creatures? And then who is worthy to open the scroll? I think that'll be an easy one to answer. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for how you have given Daniel this vision of your divine timetable, the decree for your chosen people Israel, and how, Lord, after that 483 first years of 490 decreed, that you delivered up your son, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, to atone for our sins. Father, we sit in this room worshiping him because he is the Lamb of God, worthy of our worship and praise. And Lord, we know that he will come again. And when he comes, he will come as a conquering king. He will come in power and glory, and we will come with him. Oh, Lord, help us to fuel our faith as we share this good news with those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please stand as we sing this hymn, and if you've never trusted Christ, now's the time to respond. You come forward, and I'll speak with you. If you want to join our church family, this is a wonderful church family to be a part of. If you want to join, you come forward, and I'll welcome you to our church family. And then finally, if you want to pray right there in your pew, if you want to just get right with God, if you want to have a personal conversation, you do that now as we sing this closing hymn of invitation beneath the cross of Jesus.